basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Just a quick note before we begin today's episode, we have a really interesting and special guest. So interesting and special, in fact, that he and I talked for so long that I'm actually going to have to split the interview into two parts. So today we have part one of Dr. David Kendall, and next time on Terranauts, we'll have part two. So let's get started. Hello, I'm Ian Christie. And this is Terranauts. On Terranauts, we often talk about the fact that no one gets to space alone, that space is a team sport, not only for individuals, but for countries as well, at least for the last 40 years or so. And while we have certainly talked to our share of Terranauts with extensive international experience, it's pretty rare to have one with the pedigree of today's guest. Dr. David Kendall has not only been at the forefront of major international collaborations in space for the last 40 years, He's also been a vice president of the International Astronautical Federation, and for two years he was the chair of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. My friends, if there was ever a Terranaut that exemplified the principle that you get to space by going to a lot of meetings, it's David Kendall. Dr. David Kendall, welcome to Terranauts. Thank you, Ian. It's a great uh, pleasure to be uh, uh, with you today. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've been meaning to, to ask you to be on for a while. I don't know what took me so long to get around to it, because uh, uh, as I said, your, your experience is, is um, you know, certainly almost, well, you know, it's, it's not unique in the sense that a lot of people uh, end up doing things they didn't expect to do, but not very many people end up running a UN committee. So um, I think we, we definitely want to talk about that. But before we get there, um, you know, we always want to start by, by uh, talking about where about the young David Kendall, where, where did you grow up? And, you know, was space something that you were interested in back then? Well, uh, yes, yes, it was definitely. I mean, see, I grew up, uh, uh, I was, well, let's uh, put the numbers down here. I was born in 1948. Uh, therefore, I was nine years old when Mr. Gagarin uh, went off into, uh, no, sorry, when Sputnik went in, sorry, not yes. Gagarin, of course, when Sputnik uh, was launched. And uh, during that period, there was a tremendous amount of interest um, in what was going on uh, in both the US and the uh, Soviet Union um, on uh, building up to that, that point. And uh, so space was, was very much, it was just totally different um, take on space in those days. It was just a lot of exciting stuff going on. Um, so, uh, but uh, I never thought that I would ever get involved in space. I was clearly interested in it as many kids were. Um, but uh, what I was interested in, um, and I grew up in a very sort of standard um, family, one sister, one mother, one father, uh, and uh, uh, very sort of stable um, uh, upbringing. Um, and, uh, but what was interesting was that I lived quite close to the uh, flight path uh, of uh, Heathrow Airport. Right. Um, on the west side, uh, I lived in a little small, well, fairly big town called Twickenham on the Thames, uh, that is uh, about 20 kilometers west of, uh, of London. Um, and I was interested in watching these aircraft just go, go, go through and go over, overhead and 
Um, and like uh, many kids, uh, started to plane spot. So that means that, you know, me and my friends went up to, up to uh, Heathrow, uh, took the bus up to Heathrow and, and went to uh, the, uh, uh, and, and, and took the numbers down of the uh, registration numbers. Right. And quite fascinated to, to see the, um, uh, the, the wonderful Pan Am and TWA Lockheed Super Constellations uh, come in, you know, in those days. Uh, and that, of course, that would be the, the very early days of jet airliners, I guess, oh, 707s and DC-8s. And... I remember the 707 only went into service in uh, October of 1958. Um, so, uh, so, yes, so, so yes, so we started to see the, uh, uh, the 707s and then, of course, they took over and then the, and the, the Comet and, uh, and uh, right. the Havilland Comet and the DC-8 and uh, whatever. So, yes, so I became very interested in just aircraft in general. Right. Um, then um, I went to university. I went to University of Wales um, to study physics, um, and then uh, by uh, sort of a bit of serendipity, effectively, I ended up in uh, the, at the University of Calgary to do a master's degree in, uh, in 1969. Um, and of course, that was a big year uh, when uh, when um, the US uh, managed to put the first people on the moon. Yes. And so that whole Apollo whole Apollo air era was of great fascination. Um, but I never thought I would be in get be able to get involved in that. Right, type of right. Well, that was before the days when I said space has been international for the last 40 years. But for the first 20 or 25 years, uh, it, it really was much more of a competition than it was a collaboration. That's one of the things that's changed. I think. So then when I arrived in Calgary, you know, I just I, Calgary wasn't, you know, Calgary was uh, the choice of Calgary was uh, almost thrust upon me because I applied very late and there wasn't many uh, opportunities uh, for graduate school in Canada. Um, right. But Calgary did, did have a, an opening and so I, I, I grabbed it. Um, and at that time, um, Calgary, along with actually York University, were the two uh, centers of uh, space um, instrumentation in, really? in Canada. Um, so uh, Cliff Anger at uh, University of Calgary was putting together a, um, an auroral imager um, uh, for the ISIS-2 satellite, which was two of Canada's fourth satellite, scientific satellite, which went up in 1971. Um, and uh, Gordon Shepard was doing the same thing with uh, another uh, optical instrument that he was developing for the same uh, mission in, uh, at York University. Um, and, and so I just lucked into a, a program, uh, although I wasn't directly involved in it, I was studying at that point in time, the upper atmosphere of the earth rather than space. Um, uh, so when, you, when you came to Canada, you didn't even know you're gonna be studying anything to do with space. It was kind of no, like, no. Uh, show, show up and find out who needs a, who needs a grad student. Is that Exactly, kinda... exactly. And, uh, and Calgary was the perfect, perfect uh, location for me to be in. Um, and a lot of excitement, of course, um, developing all of the uh, all of the software, <laughs> using uh, using uh, very early computers. I remember the, the, yeah. the computer that uh, that was controlling and analyzing the data from uh, Cliff Anger's uh, Aurora Imager was a PDP eleven. I mean, it's a one of those wonderful uh, <laughs> early. Was it, still, uh, was it still punch cards? Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, um, so I, I, my, my thesis work. Um, I started in my master's degree um, working with a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful supervisor called uh, Ian Har um, Harrison, um, and uh, and then I went into my PhD with uh, um, 
uh, Alan Clark, uh, and Alan had just got a, um, a contract from the Atmospheric Environment Service of Canada, um, and a, a gentleman called Wayne Evans, a wonderful, again, a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, scientist uh, and leader, uh, who had decided that uh, he wanted to uh, solve some of the issues dealing with what was in those days um, the destruction of the ozone layer, the whole right. question of freons and uh, how the ozone layer was uh, being depleted, uh, which we knew it was being depleted. What we didn't know was how it was being depleted and what the chemistry was up there. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of instrumentation that was being um, studying, studying the ozone layer, but it was all single instruments. And what Wayne realized, um, uh, very visionary, was that what you needed to do is put a platform together, send it up into the ozone layer, which you can do with these high altitude balloons, and put about a dozen different instruments on board that are measuring various aspects um, of the chemistry and of the dynamics of that uh, region, okay. um, and, and put all the instruments, to, uh, the results together, and you, you'll get a, a decent result. Okay, so we, we need to unpack a few things here for people who, who, who don't know. Uh, when you say balloon, uh, you know, people think of of the round, colorful thing that you you know that you have at birthday parties, but but that's not what we're talking about when you talk about a high altitude balloon, right? No, exactly. These high altitude balloons um, are massive, great uh, structures. Well, there's basically a piece of uh, um, of polystyrene. Effectively, you can think of it. You blow them up to about a hundredth of of their capacity uh, right. on the ground. Um, and then you let them go and they are with helium and you, you fill them with helium. And then and as they rise, of course, they expand uh, to where they settle about 40 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Right. And at that time, they have filled out um, because the pressure is about 100th the, uh, the pressure on the ground. Yes. And these things then are about as big as the uh, as the width of these things. They're sort of roundish, um, about as big as the uh, parliament buildings really? in Ottawa. I did not know that. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about is the ozone layer, because, I mean, for people who grew up then, this is kind of a well-established, um, you know, we, we might remember, but for, for people today, it's a well-established fact that, you know, human beings were, um, were um, destroying the ozone layer. And, uh, and we've come to accept that. And we all, you know, hear the UV index in the summer. And, but I mean, that in 19, the early 1970s, none of that, um, was true. And, and in some ways, I feel like that discussion was a little bit like what we talk about with climate change today. Was, is, is that yeah. a fair analogy? That is a fair analogy. I mean, what was happening quite right, you're quite right to describe the way you did. Um, the ozone layer, we, we started to measure from the ground the, uh, the concentration of ozone around the world and found that there were getting, it was becoming depleted. It, the, the amount of ozone up there was, we were losing ozone. And ozone, of course, is a is a protector for us. It uh, it screens out the uh, high ultraviolet uh, radiation, um, and people were starting to do predictions and showing that melanoma, skin cancer, was going to increase fairly rapidly. And Canada, being a northern country um, with a fairly thin um, uh, ozone layer, even to start off with, because it's not the same around the world, would be certainly. Um, uh, affected strongly by uh, if we started to, if, if the if the rate of ozone destruction continued, so a lot of res research was being done around the world. And again, this is I guess my first 
um, introduction to international research because uh, the research that we, we were doing and I was building Michelson, far infrared uh, Michelson interferometers with Alan Clark um, and launching them on this uh, big package that uh, Wayne had put together um, into the high atmosphere. Um, and what we, um, you know, what we were finding uh, was that indeed uh, some of the chemistry uh, was very interesting and, uh, and, and, and unusual. Um, the way that the freons uh, and the chlorine uh, was being released from the freons was sort of very, uh, was, was critical to the whole process. Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, say it didn't take a long time. It took a few years to realize that this is, was the chemistry. This was what we needed to do. And clearly we needed to um, control the gases that we were pumping into the atmosphere um, sort of very willy nilly and very, uh, without in much, many, well, no restrictions. Um, and that led, of course, later on, I mean, say, in, and I look this up, it was the Montreal Protocol, which uh, in the end uh, was, the, was the protocol which, um, uh, banned these freons from being uh, produced. Um, and that was in 1987. So I was doing my research in the middle of the 70s. So again, and actually an interesting um, uh, sort of development because uh, while we knew the results of, of what was happening in the mid 70s, it took 10 years for yeah, the Yeah, so that must, it must have been interesting knowing this thing, no, knowing for certain that there was this thing that humanity needed to do to you know, save itself from from you know a moderate catastrophe, uh, right. and watch that play out in public as the world gradually assimilated the truth of that fact, right? Yes, it was, and and again, this is I think this is my first uh, introduction to sort of policy and, and in, in in the in the big P uh, sense of yeah. sense of it um, that the countries and states had to get together and. Uh, and stroke their beards and think about this, and, and then finally decide on something which was um, was appropriate. And this is the process, of course, we've been going in, going through for the yeah. past 10, 15, 20 years uh, with the whole uh, climate change uh, issue. Well, but I guess I guess we should take some hope from the fact that we managed to do it once, even if it was on a smaller scale. So yeah, indeed. So, but but balloons, for all that they get pretty big and they get pretty high, they don't get to space. So so how did you eventually actually get to space? <laughs> well, um, once uh, once I left, uh, uh, once I finished my PhD, I immediately joined a um, wonderful company called BOMEM, it's now called EBB, um, uh, in, uh, in, in Quebec City, uh, working with Henry Baige, uh, Gary Vale, uh, Jean-Noël Jean Berubet, the three uh, sort of uh, principals there. Um, I was, I think, the 13th member of their team. Um, and they, they had a contract from going now to bouncing back to um, a gentleman who I mentioned originally, Gordon Shepard, who uh, had put the uh, instrument on the ISIS-2 satellite back in 1971 from York University. He was developing a new uh, technique, um, again, using Michelson interferometry, which was the same technique that I had been studying and working with in my PhD. And he had started to being, he had a contract um, from, uh, from the government uh, to put an instrument on board the space shuttle. Um, because in those days, the space shuttle was supposed to, of course, uh, people probably don't remember this, but it was billed as a sort of a truck which went into space. You, um, 
you uh, sent it up with a whole bunch of things on board. Um, they did their science, they brought it back again. Um, they uh, they changed out the uh, the payloads, and then they uh, they sent it up. You know, in a few few weeks later. <laughs> of course, this was this was this never happened. Um, but uh, it was a nice idea, and they sold it on that principle. Um, um, and so uh, so um, Gordon was working on an instrument called Windy. And uh, uh, sorry, Wamdi. This is the first one, uh, the wide-angle Michelson Doppler imaging interferometer for its full name. And and Bomem had a contract which they gave, which I was running for them, um, to study some of the uh, optics that were needed, some of the filtering, some of the other uh, glasses, and other things that we needed to uh, how to build this uh, rather complex instrument. So I was starting to, and and I was sort of involved in the science a little bit as well. I was starting to get involved in that, but my really my my break one might say to become a terranaut uh, <laughs> happened a few years later when I left um, left Bomem uh, in 1982 and joined the uh, Space Science Division of the National Research Council, which was the forerunner uh, for the space science program at uh, at uh, the Canadian Space Agency, and as a as a program scientist, so I was I was I was hired to do science and and and. Um, and to help with develop their their program, uh, and then and then this uh, again nice nice bit of serendipity came along. Um, Mr. Reagan uh, and Mr. Mulroney um, saying Irish eyes are smiling in Quebec City, uh, and agreed that uh, they the Canada would develop a um, uh, be a partner in their space shuttle program. Um, this was in 1983. Um, and, uh, oh, and by the way, uh, we'll send one of your fly people, one of your astronaut people up in space uh, next year. Wow. Um, and, <laughs> every, and so everybody sort of was aghast and was, was very surprised by this, but it was a wonderful opportunity. So uh, the then, so, so we were, uh, we at the um, uh, space, space Science Division of the National Research Council were tasked to say, okay, so what science do we want to do sure. to this? Sure. Uh, we'll, not, we'll fly a Canadian, but what will he do when he's up there? Right. He's up there, yeah. We can't have him just sitting at the window, so smiling and, and sitting in there. So we need to put a package of science experiments together. Um, and we had to do it pretty damn quickly because now we're probably we're less than a year away from his flight. Um, so so we put together something called Canex One, uh, which was six, six or seven, really quite simple, but I think profound experiments. Um, uh, life sciences, material sciences. I know Ian, you were involved with uh, some of the uh, very early um, docking um, uh, work that uh, Canada was doing at that point in time, um, and uh, and working out how we can remotely dock to the uh, to uh, to things. Um, uh, and, and I put together an experiment which um, basically looked at and, 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 and the first few uh, first few shuttle flights had shown that uh, that at certain periods of time at certain altitudes certain um, uh, directions of flight one might say of the shuttle the damn thing glowed in the in the red I mean it was, it was pr pretty pronounced you could see this glow coming off the shuttle nobody knew why this glow was there uh, it shouldn't really be there. We couldn't think of the chemistry that, that made it glow. But <laughs> the curious thing is that um, Gordon Shepard, of course, and, and his team were going to were wanting to fly a uh, an instrument, a very sensitive uh, optical instrument uh, um, on the shuttle, uh, which 
which was observing precisely in in, in the red, right, right. this red part of the spectrum. Yes. So they, they didn't want to see the shuttle with this. They instrument. didn't want to see the shuttle glow. They wanted to see, <laughs> see the atmosphere. Uh, and so I uh, I put together a very simple instrument, um, and and it was approved. Um, and we flew it with Mark, and uh, it was called Oglo, um, and that was the nickname for it. And basically, it was a uh, a camera, um, a thirty-five millimeter camera, with a um, light image intensifier, very sensitive light image intensifier, and a set of filters uh, in front of it to study uh, what the what what glow what what what, it, what 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 was the characteristics of the glow? What were the characteristics of the glow? And um, would this be in the same wavelength regions that the WAMD uh, instrument was going to observe? And so we had a lot of fun doing that, and uh, and it was a but, successful. But it, you know, you kind of gloss over probably what was the most interesting part of that, at least for people who who you know are, aren't familiar with the science, which is getting sucked into Canada's first astronaut mission must must have had its interesting days. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there was a, um, we, uh, we were led by a, a wonderful gentleman who passed away just quite recently, um, Bruce Aikenhead, who had, a, who was part of the Avro Arrow program, who had gone to the state after the Arrow, had worked with NASA on the, on the early uh, Mercury and Gemini missions, had come back to Canada and knew, knew the way NASA worked. And, and he was invaluable. I mean, so he was fabulous. He was the one, and, and, you know, this is one of the things here is that we were to put together a package of six in, say, fairly simple instruments um, in uh, roughly nine months. Um, NASA had never ever done this and never wanted to do this. <laughs> um, they everything that they did was very carefully co yes. uh, constructed and, yes. and scripted. Uh, the minimum they said to put an, anything on board that shuttle would be two years. Uh, to test it, to bang it, to uh, outgas it, to whatever. I mean, the, you know, they weren't going to let anything on that shuttle that hadn't been gone through their very, very strict safety protocol. And one has to agree with this. I mean, so well, the attitude had much by the time I was working on the shuttle program 15 years later. So, but, yeah. but, but it was also, I mean, I don't know if Mark Garneau was the first international astronaut, but he had to be one of the very first. Wow. Yeah, I, I checked that one out and he was a second. In fact, Ulf Meerbold of the European Space Agency had flown um, about nine months before him. Okay. Uh, but he was the second international. Um, and, and, and really, by the time you're doing this, you know, they're barely getting through the first time they've done, done it. Oh, so absolutely. They, they, I knew a few people at NASA um, yeah. who had some fairly direct opinions about the qualifications of people who hadn't grown up at NASA. To participate in their missions, let's say, uh, I can imagine that that there might have been some full and frank exchange of views on some topics while you're trying to do this, right? Yeah, there ab absolutely were. But again, we were sort of protected. Uh, uh, we were protected, and uh, and when things things got really um, say a little tense, uh, <laughs> uh, we would be ushered out the room, and uh, and Bruce would take over, and uh, you know, basically he said okay you can argue about this as much as you want but you know we have instructions from our prime minister you have instructions from your president um if you want to go to your president and tell him he's a fool uh then please do so but uh, as far as we're concerned we've got no, to, no one ever took him up on that i guess <laughs> we're gonna go ahead and do it yeah but you know I, I guess i just bring it up too though because you did you know work a lot with nasa and others since then and, and it really has changed 
right? Oh. Like, like that. It's a completely different world now. I mean, even than when I was working at NASA, there's no there's no pushback at all now on the international aspect. No, and 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 they and, and you're quite right. I mean, you pointed out that uh, Mark was the second. Um, they hadn't really worked with an international team up to that point in time. And of course, as you remember, these were payload specialists, not mission specialists. So, yes. So, um, so Mark's, uh, you know, his his experience was zero, and and his uh, his training was very minimal. Um, this is, you know, if something happens, go and sit over there and strap yourself in. Um, but once they got mission specialists, once they got more um, sort of relaxed, and the word is, is a good word, um, about having internationals on board, then things started to uh, started to in, in, improve and increase uh, uh, the, co the collaboration much more strongly. So, so I have to ask you this. Did you go to the launch? Did you go to Mark's launch? Absolutely. It was a fa fabulous, uh, uh, fabulous experience. Um, yeah, I've been to three or four launches, and but that one certainly sticks in my mind. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there today. We just don't have time to finish the interview with David. Next time on Terranauts, we'll pick it up right here and we'll talk about uh, David's work uh, for the Canadian Space Agency and eventually how he came to be the chair of the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Make sure you tune in here. It's a fascinating story. For now, uh, we're gonna have, I'm going to have to sign off. Uh, as per usual, if you'd like to support the show, please feel free to rate or review us on your favorite podcatcher app, respond with some feedback, or recommend us to a friend. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.